All right. Well, you did a good job. This is either like the most committed people to church or uh, people that have four by fours. So that's, that's good to know. Now I know. All right. Um, uh, so there, there was a time in my life where I think, uh, in particular, I knew that some people around me were grumbling about me. There's probably a few times in my life like that, but there was a time in particular in my life where there were just some people that I was interacting with on a somewhat regular basis, and I knew that they were just kind of grumbling about me, sometimes maybe when I was even in the room, but behind my back, that kind of thing. And so here was the time. I had just graduated college. Me and my wife, we actually had broken up. We had been broken up uh, mostly due to my emotional immaturity. And so she was wise in breaking up with me for a season. But uh, the Lord brought us back together. And as we were getting back together, here's what happened is I, I, began, I began to come to her, her apartment more often all of a sudden. We actually lived in the same apartment complex, and so I w- it was very easy for me to go visit her. And she had two roommates. Now, her two roommates, they were my friends too, okay? But I started coming to the apartment more often, and I think they just didn't want me there. So I'd show up, come to hang out with Jess, something I'd done many times with some of these same roommates before, and uh, at least one of them, and uh, I could just tell I was not wanted there. <laughs> like, they were, there was suspicion of me, they didn't like me. Now, here's something to know about me. When I'm around people that I feel like are wronging me, I begin to kind of like, Uh, fantasize about some kind of one-liner I could say to them to get them to stop wronging me and being mean to me, right? This is, this is sin, but uh, this is, this is something in me. Like, I just kind of start to do that. So, uh, as these roommates were kind of being rude to me in different ways and grumbling about me in different ways, there was just this one time where they were both there as I was leaving, uh, this, this one-liner started to just kind of bubble up in me. And as I was leaving, I said, hey, I think they, I, I was like, good thing you both are here, because here's what I'm going to say. And I said something like, listen, I know you don't want me around here anymore, but me and Jess are getting back together, so you're going to have to deal with it. So you're also going to have to be nicer to me. And then I started to walk out, and it felt so good. It felt so good to say that. It felt so good. But then I had to have like a 20 to 40-minute conversation with them about whatever they were mad at me about. So... Um, for being a great guy. That's why they were mad at me. Um, so when people grumble about me, that's how I respond. I, well, in my most immature moments, <laughs> that's how I respond. Some kind of pithy one-liner, that's like in me, that's like my natural response to when people are around me grumbling about me. When Jesus is grumbled about, that's not how he responds at all. In fact, I want you to see how Jesus responds and look, that Je- and see, Jesus actually had, there was these many instances where Jesus had uh, people grumbling about him. But one of my favorites is in Luke chapter 15. I actually forgot to put these verses on the screen. But verses 1 and 2, and, part, and 3 really, of verse 15 show us how Jesus responds when people grumble about him. Here's what verse 1 says. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable, and then he tells them another parable, and then he tells them a third parable. 
Sinners of all sorts were drawn to Jesus. Sinners of all kinds were drawn to Jesus. And Jesus, this religious figure, this religious leader of the day, he doesn't shoo away these sinners like the other religious leaders did. And so the religious elite of his day, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they see Jesus sitting and welcoming sinners in his presence, fellowshipping with them, hanging out with them, doing all kinds of stuff, being with them, developing friendships with them. And the religious leaders of his day, they see that and they start muttering or grumbling or complaining, depending on your English translation, about him. And Jesus, to deal with their grumbles... He doesn't give like a one-liner like I do. He actually tells these three parables, these three stories. And and what we see in these three stories is that each of these stories, they're they're, they're connected to one another and related to one another. And Jesus is telling them to show the religious elite of his day what his heart is for the sinners that they don't want around Jesus. Right? Right? Which, by the way, Jesus' heart for sinners is God's heart for sinners. Jesus is God in the flesh. So Jesus, by telling these stories, he's showing the grumblers what his heart for sinners is. I show my heart in general with one-liners. Jesus shows his heart with stories of love and compassion. And I would even say Jesus is being somewhat patient with these religious elite, at least in this moment. And so then he tells these three stories to them. He tells the story of this lost sheep. He tells the story of a lost coin. And then he tells the story of two lost sons. And so if you haven't guessed it yet, uh, or if you can't tell yet, we're, we, today we're starting a series in Luke chapter 15. Uh, we're actually going to cover the whole chapter throughout this series. But in particular, we're going to zoom in on this third story. And this third story, it's famously called the, the parable of the prodigal son. But I think when we call it that, we miss that the story is actually about two lost sons. Remember, Jesus is telling these stories because the religious elite were grumbling. So we have to begin to view this story and hear this story through this lens of Jesus answering and speaking to and talking to these religious elite grumblers who did not like the fact that Jesus was sitting with sinners. And so I think it's a parable of two lost sons. One son that leaves the father physically, another son that has left the heart of the father. And both of the sons do damage to their relationship with the father. So if you're not very familiar with this chapter of Luke Luke 15, here's some good things to know. Uh, It's good to know that Jesus is trying to communicate that him and his father's heart, they are one, are are for the sinners represented in the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. That, that, that Jesus has a heart for those three groups. So each, those are all metaphors being used to describe any human that's like out of connection with God. Okay? And then Jesus, he identifies himself as the one who finds the lost sheep, who finds this lost coin, and, and, and the compassionate father who wants both sons in his family. So Jesus, he, he hangs out with sinners. He hangs out with people that, that miss the mark. He hangs out with people that lose their way. He hangs out with people that choose their own path away from God. And in these stories, we find out why. We find out that he has this huge heart for sinners. 
So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look very closely, like I said, at this third story, the famously called the story of the prodigal son, but I think it's the story of two lost sons. We're going to actually kind of do a character study each week of the series. It's just going to be a three-week-long series, and we're just going to do a character study in this third story. Today, we're going to look at the infamous prodigal son. Next week, we'll zoom in and do a character study on the compassionate father. And in the third week, we'll look at this older son in the story. So here's what we're going to do today. First, we're going to go through the prodigal son's part of the story. We're just going to go a few verses at a time, making sure we understand the story in its context and understand what's happening in the story. And then we're just going to talk about two things that we learn from the story. The first is this. We, like the prodigal, want God our father dead. And the second thing is God's love can melt our hearts into repenting. Okay, so that's what we're going to go through the story and learn those two things, okay? Uh, one more thought before we hop into the story. I want to suggest a book. I, I do this from time to time in the series. You could go ahead and put up that picture of the book. This is an amazing book. I just read it over the last month. C.J. Thompson, one of our elders who helps oversee and shepherd the church, he's, he gave it to me about a month or two ago, uh, and I began to read it. It's called The Cross and the Prodigal. It's by Kenneth Bailey. This has been one of my favorite books in recent memory that I've read. So if you're looking for a book that goes a little bit deeper into this chapter of the Bible, pick up this book. It's a pretty easy read. He's a great scholar, but this is a very approachable book. It has stirred my heart and my affections for God. It has helped me see and understand things about this chapter in the Bible that I, that I hadn't seen before. And so pick up that book if you want. In fact, if you really want to read it but you can't afford it, I will buy the book for you. Just uh, tell me, okay? I would love to. So let's get into it. I'm going to take a drink, and then we'll hop into this story a few verses at a time. Okay, Luke 15, verse 11, if you have your Bibles, is where we'll start today. We're going to read through 13. Jesus continued, so he's telling these stories. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the, his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a di distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Okay, let's pause there for a bit. So this, here's how life existed back then. Uh, a lot of people lived in, in or near a village of some sort. So a village would have like, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 families all living it living in it, and they'd live off the land, and they would, like, it would be very communal. They would provide for each other. They would trade, barter, that kind of stuff, and that seems to be where this story is taking place, in that kind of a, a village life, where there's these different families connected to this village, and it seems that this story is zooming in on one particular wealthy family in the village. This would happen in, the village, in a lot of villages, too. There would be one farmer of some sort, or a few farmers of some sort, and and we see that in this story, this guy, he has his own property, he, he either farms, he does some kind of thing, and he, he's, he's a wealthy father. He's almost kind of like a mini king. And, and so what would happen is not only was this family wealthy, but they would be very much connected 
communally connected to the rest of, of the village. There would be people from the village that would come work for this kind of mini king of, of a father, not just the, the family. And then uh, something else good to know is the whole family would work together back then. They would all work together kind of on whatever the family trade or whatever it was. It seems to be some kind of farming would be my guess. And so we have this, that's kind of our setting and we have Jesus zooming in on this one particular family in this one particular village, and this family has two sons. So what would happen in that day on the passing of wealth is eventually the father would die, and the oldest son would become the next kind of like mini king. He would take over the property, and he would run the property. And then if he had two sons, like in this situation, the second son would get a third of the wealth, and he would probably go off and start his own property, maybe in the same village. Maybe he would stay on, and who knows. But usually I think the second son, once the father died, would get one-third of the wealth, and then he'd be off and kind of doing his own thing. This son, though, in the story, the younger son, he goes up to the father, and he says, give me my share of the estate now. So this son, he wants, he wants his money before his father is dead. Now, here's important to know. The son is actually not breaking any laws. There's no laws. There was no even Jewish laws that said it was wrong for a son to ask for his estate early. But in that time, in that place where they lived so communally, so connected to one another, so, so often lo- looking out for the good of one another, it's almost like the son is going up to the father and saying, I don't trust you anymore. I want to use my wealth without your control over it. In fact, I think every scholar I've ever read on Luke 15, they say it would actually be worse than that. It'd be like the son was going up to his dad and saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could just have my portion of the estate. So I could just get my portion of what's coming to to me. Now, we we don't know the son. We don't know if that was his intention or, or not. But in that social climate, in that social context, that's what this would have sounded like to anyone listening. It would have sounded like this son saying, I wish you were dead already so I could get my money. So the son says this really kind of crazy, offensive thing. And the father, his response is, okay. And he fulfills the son's wish. He says, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you what you're asking for. And, and then what we see is the son, very soon after that, he's just off doing wild living, whatever that was for a Jewish guy that day. I don't know. Uh, there's something else really interesting about the story that I totally missed until reading that book about what, what probably happened, and it, it's, it clue, there's a clue there in the Greek. When it says that he kind of gave up all that he had, took care of all that he had, in the Greek there's connotations there of the son actually liquidating all of the wealth into cash. Okay, so certainly they had currency back then, but current, you know, a lot of their wealth was in actual things. Like, so if they were farmers, whatever the, the farming produce was, or if they were you know, ranchers, whatever that was, some, some cows or goats or whatever. And so what that kind of Greek there clues us in on is the son essentially gets all his whatever it is, and he just starts selling it as fast as possible. And scholar Kenneth Bailey, he notes, like, if he was doing that, he was probably selling everything at a discounted rate. Because in reality is, he just offended his, whole, offended his whole family, and he's got to get out of there as fast as possible, so he is just selling this stuff left and right. Like, just imagine the scene. Imagine the scene. You're part of the family. 
Wealth is normally used in a shared way for the good of the whole family, and you have this one rogue, spoiled son who asks for his wealth. The father, for some reason, gives him the wealth. The son starts selling everything right there on the property in front of you. It would be so offensive. Like, you'd be watching him sell all these goats or whatever. Goats you know are worth 200, and he sells them for 100. And one of those goats was your favorite goat, by the way. And so you're angry. You're just watching. You just go, what is This is disgusting to me. I can't believe that this kid, is, that my brother, that my, whoever it is in relation in the family, I can't believe he's doing this. The son is not breaking any laws. It wasn't illegal for a son to do this, but he's hurting his family. He's hurting his family. He's going against every way that those families would live together. He's willingly to, in front of everyone, break his relationship with his father and with the rest of the family so that he can selfishly do what he wants to do. That's what it, this would have, if we heard the story, we would have thought the prodigal son's actions were appalling if we lived in the first century. I got family members who have just called me names that I have a hard time being around. I can't imagine having a family member do something like this to me. I feel like there would be no coming back. Let's keep going in the story, see what happens next with this son who just he goes out, lives wildly. Verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father... I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Okay, so the son goes out. He goes off to a distant country with all the money, and he just wilds out. He just uses the money on all kinds of things, just wild living for however long he does this. And then he's in that country, and a famine comes to that country, and he's in trouble. He's run out of money, he's destitute, he has no skills that are worth anything in that country, and so he's just destitute. And it's interesting, he attaches himself to a different wealthy man in that country that's very distant. Uh, It says citizen there. Back then, to be a citizen probably meant that you had some level of stature, wealth, power in society. And so he attaches himself to a different wealthy man in a different country, and he, this citizen goes, okay, I, I got work for you. You can go feed the pigs, which just would have been a horrifying job for a kosher Jewish boy. <laughs> worst job, worst case scenario, right? Like this is, they're watching dirty jobs. This is the worst one for them back then. Like they're going, I can't do this. <laughs> but he has no option, so he's, he's working with these pigs, and he's feeding these pigs, and he's feeding them these pods, and, he, and it says, as he, 
like he, he starts to long to wish to eat what they would eat. Now, these pods, they're kind of like, they almost do look like pea pods. They were probably carob pods, if I'm saying that right. They're all over Israel. I've even, I feel like I've seen these in Phoenix, but they're these like dried up, almost kind of like green bean pods. And here's the thing, human, humans can eat them, they just can't live off of them. And so his job is to feed these pigs, be around these pigs, and feed them. And so he's feeding them one day. And I think what probably happened is he began to fantasize about being a pig. That's what I think. Anyone that's been in a desperate situation, you know when you're in desperate situations, you start to just make lots of wishes in your head all the time. Like, I wish I had this. I wish. And I, I, I bet he just says, look, he's feeding these pigs. He goes, man, I wish I could eat what pigs eat. Like, that would make life easy. Like, if I could just eat these pods all the time, life would be, I could just come over to this tree, grab a bunch, eat a bunch, and then be on my way, keep wild living. Like, like this is, like, and he's going, yeah, I wish. And at some point, I don't know if it's because, like, a, a pig, like, tried to hand him a pod or whatever. Like, I don't know what happened, but he comes to his senses and he realizes, like, what am I doing here? And he begins to go, okay, at my dad's house, even the servants... They have way more food than I have right now, and I'm his son. I, I, I should go back, and he hatches this plan. He comes up. He goes, here's my plan. I'm going to head back over there. I'm going to see my dad, and I'm going to say, okay, dad, I sinned against God, and I sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be your son. Please just make me like one of your hired servants. Right? I just, and then he, he begins to walk home after he hatches this plan. And I just imagine him on the walk home, on the journey home, it's probably a long journey, him just like rehearsing this over and over again. Like, Dad, no, no, Dad, I wish, or I, I, I mean, uh, Dad, I'm sorry that I sinned against you. No, no, start with the God stuff. Dad, I sinned against God and you. I'm not worthy. Please make me a plumber at your house. Like, like, and then, no, he needs an electrician. Like, I just imagine, he's just like, he's like, I need to uh, figure out how to work my way back into the family, and then let's see what happens. He starts walking, he takes the jury home, 20 verse B. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Go get my signet ring and put it on his fingers. And he needs some sandals. Put some sandals on his feet. And then here's what we're going to do. Get the fattened calf. Bring it out. Kill it. Let's have a feast. And let's celebrate my son. For this son of mine was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. At this part of the story, we find out the father was never really okay with the son leaving. We know that because it says this, while he was a long way off, the father sees the son, notices the son walking back in to the village, into the town, to the property, while he was a long way off. The father spent his days 
looking out into the distance, hoping he'd see his son on the horizon. Because the second that he saw his son, he was the first to run out. He was off to the races. He was the first to meet him. We know the father was never okay with the son leaving because he was always looking for the son to return. Right? The son, he actually doesn't even get a, his chance to give his big speech that he's been practicing before the father's just covering him with hugs and kisses and love. He's just saying, I missed you. I'm so glad you're back. The son can't even croak out a speech before his father's just covering him with love. And then the son croaks out a speech. It's a little bit different, though. It's like, I, I've sinned against God and against you. I'm unworthy to be your son. There's nothing about this kind of hired servant work stuff. And in the story, it's like the father almost didn't even hear what the son said. He just started, he starts getting to work, just lavishing more love on him. He said, go get one of the best robes, put it on him. This is like a kingly type robe. This is like a robe only the father of the house would wear. This was a sign of honor. This is something the father would only do to honor others. And it was, he, he would wear it. People would know he's the patriarch of the family. He says, go get that robe, put it on my son. He says, go get my ring, put it on him. This was likely a signet ring. A signet ring, like back in the day, kings would stamp things or powerful fathers would stamp things with this ring so people would know that it came from their authority and it was under his command. And he says, go get that ring, put it on my son. And then he, he even cares for his needs, putting shoes on his feet. So the father sets up this, and then what happens is the father sets up a ceremony. So he honors the kid, loves the kid, and then he sets up a party. Now, here's what's really interesting. There was actually a different kind of ceremony they had for this exact scenario. Back then, in those kinds of villages, they had something called a kazaza ceremony. Super fun to say. Okay, a kazaza ceremony. Now, this ceremony was a little bit different. If a son went off, squandered his family's wealth, and came back to town, what would happen is they'd see him at the edge of town, and probably a bunch of the youth and then a bunch of the others would just surround the kid, bring him into the center of the village or over to the father's house, and they would begin this kazaza ceremony. Someone would go and get a pot, they would break the pot in front of the, in front of the son, and then they would all just start chanting, this son is cut off from the family. And they would just keep chanting that over and over again until, I guess, until everyone was satisfied. And then the son would be, like, excommunicated. He would be cut off from the family, cut off from the village. That was what would usually happen to any son that did something like this back then. But when the son arrives, the father doesn't set up a kazaza ceremony. He sets up a party, a feast a welcoming party, something you would do for a king or a prince. That's what the father starts. The father in Jesus' story does not act like the earthly fathers Jesus' listeners were used to. This would have been a shocking story. This would have been a strange story for the first century listeners to hear because the father embraces the son and he enacts love and honor on the son that the son did not earn. And he throws a party for the son that more than likely the whole village and the whole household would have scoffed at. But here's what we know from Jesus' story about this father. One thing is really clear. This father loves his son much more than any normal father. 
And next week, we'll look in depth at that father's love. But this is where we'll stop today in the story of the prodigal son, his welcome home. And I think there's two things from the prodigal son's part of the story that we learn. Two things. The first thing is this. The first, we, we see in the story, if we, we see it in its cultural context, we see that the prodigal son wants his father dead. At the very least, it's like how his actions and his words live as though he wants his father dead. Now, here's something you have to remember about Jesus' parables. He's teaching us, whenever Jesus gives us a parable, he's teaching us things about reality. So Jesus is not just here telling a fun story. He's telling us something that's true about God, something that's true about God's kingdom, and something often that's true about us as humans. So what, what God is trying to teach us through this parable is that we, as humanity, we, as individual humans, we are prodigals when it comes to God. And one of the things fundamentally wrong in our relationship with God is we want God dead. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, we will see that what we want is the same thing that the prodigal son wants. We want a life without the control of our father. That's, I really think, like, just think through a lot of our doubts, a lot of our issues that we have with God, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself. You can really boil them down to the fact that at the end of the day, I'm having that doubt or I'm having that struggle because I, I, I just want God dead. And that's not every doubt, but a lot of my doubts, it's like I, I just, at the end of the day, I want God dead so I could be in charge. So things can go the way that I think they should go. And the reason that is a problem for us is because that sort of attitude toward God hurts our relationship with him. It's hard, I've noticed, to have a relationship with someone you want dead. It's impossible. But if we're going to apply the truth of what Jesus is teaching here rightly, we have to see that there's some part of us, some human part of us, where we wish our perfect, good, loving, heavenly Father, who we were made to be connected to, we want him dead so we could be our own God. Right? The wild living or like the specific sins that you and I commit, I think a lot of them, if not all of them, stem from wanting God dead, wanting him out of our life, and thus hurting our relationship with him. Right? The, the prodigal's issue in the story, it wasn't actual law-breaking. It wasn't actual like committing some sin that one of the Ten Commandments was saying it was a sin. The, the, the wrong that he was doing was relationship breaking. He was breaking his relationship with his father. I think if we could see like the reality of the human condition, the human situation, what we'd see, we'd see kind of like God over here on one side. And we, if we could just truly see reality for what it is, we'd see God in all his perfection and goodness and loving kindness just kind of here with open arms just saying, I love you, I'm here for you, I, I love you perfectly, and we'd see humanity or us on the other side just kind of going like, ah, I think I can do it better. I, I think I don't really need you, and just kind of turning and walking our own way. I think if we could see the reality of our situation with God, we'd realize we're all prodigals. 
uh, okay, I want an illustration to help us. I, I know I'm going to do a Lord of the Rings illustration. I know it's, uh, it's cliche for pastors to do Lord of the Rings illustration, so here's my one for the year. I've used it up first week of service, okay? <laughs> first week of service. I think that if we could see what our relationship with God is like, it would look like this. Uh, there's this moment in the films where there's these two companions, if you don't know the movies, Sam and Frodo, and they're on this mission together. And as you watch them on this mission, you realize Sam, he's just the best. Like he is, he's just the best. He loves Frodo so deeply, so purely. He's for Frodo's good. He's doing everything he can to love and care for Frodo as they're on this terrible mission to get rid of like evil in the world. And there's this one point in their story where Gollum, who becomes this companion that kind of guides them through this, this evil place, Mordor, where he, he essentially convinces Frodo that Sam is against him. Convinces him that Sam had been doing things and been devious, and so Frodo now has turned on Sam. And when you're watching the movie, you're like, Frodo, no. Like, he's the only one. Like, he's the best thing for you, Frodo. Like, stop it. Like, this guy loves you so much, and yet still, Frodo, like, shoes Sam away. It's just a giveaway from me. And Frodo goes away, and we're all weeping at that point in the movie, if you have a heart. Okay? If you don't, deal with it. Like, figure that out. It's the saddest part in any movie ever. I think if we could watch the movie of humanity or even just our lives individually, we would see that same sort of thing going on with us and God. Where we shoo away God even though he's the best thing for us. I think that's the reality the prodigal son story points us to. You and I want God dead. And we are harming ourselves by feeding that desire. Or Often, I think we feed that desire and we say, no, 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 I'm not. And we're still harming ourselves when we do that. And I think the only thing that can overcome our hearts bent toward wanting God dead or cut out of our life is his love finally melting our heart. Which leads me to the second thing we learned from this story. Only God's love can melt our hearts into repenting. Only God's love can make our hearts step away from a life of wanting God dead or cut out of it to a life of being in his arms. In this story, I think God is inviting us into repentance that has us end up in the arms of God. One of the things I love about this story and I loved about studying it this, this last few weeks is this story, it's so infused with grace and we don't see it sometimes. It's like so infused with grace, and a lot of times we ignore that part of the story. Grace, grace is this idea, I mean, that God just gives us himself and his love, and he gives it so freely in a way that we, we don't have to earn it at all, that we can't even earn it. It's like a mother's love for her child. Like he, he, This is how God gives his love 
in the prodigal son story. I think a lot of times the story, we miss the grace part, and a lot of times the story, it's just used as kind of like a model for what repentance should look like, how to turn away from your sin and turn to God. And I actually think that's a good thing. Like, you can use this story as a model for repentance. But I think it's really, really important for us to see that this story shows that only seeing and recognizing God's love can melt our hearts into repentance, right? Let's talk about the son's repentance plan again. Now, what the son was essentially doing when he's saying, hey, I will go be one of my father's hired servants, he was saying, I'm going to take up some sort of trade, learn some sort of trade so I can work in my father's house and earn my way back into the family. Sons that did things like this back, back then, if they had any shot of actually being reconciled to their family, it would mean making all of the money that they had lost back and giving it back to the family, back to the father. And so this is what the son's plan. We see it on the road. He said, I'm going to say this speech. At the end of the speech, I'm going to say, hey, what kind of servant do you need? Make me like one of these servants. And then the father would have in the son's plan, said, okay, I need this. And the son would probably even go to a neighboring village to learn that skill set and then come back once he was ready to put it to use. And so the son, his repentance plan originally is putting reconciliation of his relationship with the father in his own hands, right? He's like, listen, I partied for a while. Time to get to work. (laughs) Time to get to work, and now I can, you know, I'll earn enough, and I'll make my way back into the family by working hard, by being a good servant, by paying my dad back. He's trying to repent on his own terms. And so that's his plan as he's walking back, and then look what happens to him. The father runs to him, loves him, shows him affection, and the son, he does give his speech, but the speech has changed. It only has the first two parts. He just says, Dad, I'm sorry. I messed everything up. Dad, I've sinned against you and God. I messed everything up. I'm sorry. There's nothing in there about becoming this hired servant all of a sudden. It's because God's love melts us into true repentance, and true repentance is accepting God's love in a state of knowing that it's just grace. God just freely gives his love to us. You can't earn your way back into God's good graces. God works his good graces to you by his work and by his love. Scholar Kenneth Bailey, he, and I actually agree with him, he actually thinks the true repentance doesn't happen when he is on the journey home. He thinks the true repentance happens when he experiences and understands the father's love for him. That's when the son's heart finally melts under the love and grace of his father. That's when true repentance happens. Jesus, in this parable, is inviting us into the graceful love of God. He's trying to get everybody listening to see how good God is, how graceful, gracious he is, how loving he is. And when we see that, that's when our hearts melt into true repentance. That's when our hearts will will turn away from our way of life, turn away from our way of control, turn away from our way of fixing things and just turn to God and fall into his arms, just say, sorry, I messed everything up. 
Only when we see and understand the love that the Father has for us will we be able to realize how much we can't fix this broken relationship we have with him on our own. And it is only by grace that we can be welcomed back into his arms. A lot of times this passage, it's used just as like an evangelistic tool. And I think that's good, actually. I love that this chapter is, is used that way. But because it's used that way, sometimes we as Christians go, I've heard this one before. I don't need to hear it again. But I actually think we really need to hear it again. We, as Christians, have to realize we have it so good in God. So good in his grace. In those moments where we live like God is dead. Where we live like a prodigal. In those moments, the only way out of those moments truly is to turn around, look at God, see his love, and let ourselves crumble into his arms again. I think a lot of us Christians in the room, if we're going to be honest, and we might be ashamed to admit this, but we have too many days where we live like prodigals where we live as if God is dead, act as if we want God cut out of our life. I think what this story says is Jesus is right there always with his arms open for you. You just need to accept his love and grace again. Church, may we, may all of us prodigals turn back to God every time we need to. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for Luke chapter 15. Thank you that you're the sort of God, when people grumble about you, you actually plead with them and help them to see where they've missed it, where they don't understand your heart, and your heart is so full of love and compassion and grace and goodness. And so God, I pray this morning, I really genuinely, God, Please help us to understand your heart and know your heart this way. Help us to see your love for us prodigals, God. I don't know if there's anybody in here who particularly feels like a prodigal, God. I pray that they just see the welcome that you want to give them. The love, the honor, the feast. I pray that they would be able to get past that. God, for us, a lot of us grew up in the church. I pray for us that your love would melt our hearts, that we would just be able to see this without all the kind of, you know, earning our way to you or being the hired servant, whatever it might be, God. I just pray that we would see your love and know your love. God, help us to get from this story and from the prodigal son in particular what you want us to get. We love you, Lord, and we need you. Amen.